You're listening to On The Money with Dynamic Funds. From market insights and analysis to personal finance, investing, and beyond, On The Money covers it all. Because when it comes to your money, we're on it. Hello, listeners. Thank you for listening to another edition of On The Money. I'm your host, Tom Dicker, Vice President and Portfolio Manager with Dynamic Funds. Today, we're going to dive into infrastructure, and we're sitting down with Frank Latshaw, Vice President and Portfolio Manager, the Lead Portfolio Manager on the Dynamic Global Infrastructure Fund, and Co-Manager of the Dynamic Energy Evolution Fund. Frank also manages the infrastructure investments across the equity income team. Frank and I joined the equity income team a few months apart in 2011, and we've worked together closely for 13 years since then. He and I are also co-managers on the Dynamic Real Estate and Infrastructure Income Funds. Frank is an accountant by background and has worked for UBS on the sell side and has been on the buy side for 20 years. Frank, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Tom. So much like my area of focus, real estate, infrastructure is always a hot topic because we're surrounded by it. It's the thing that holds the economy together. And I wanted to start with a quote from my favorite author, Kurt Vonnegut, which goes, another flaw in the human character is that everybody wants to build and nobody wants to do maintenance. On the one hand, we have this aging, under-maintained infrastructure in the Western world. And on the other hand, we have this desire by politicians to build big projects. In light of that, how do you invest in these themes and any others that are relevant in the public market? So I'd say taking a step back, you know, the infrastructure investment thesis really began in, in the late 1990s. It started with, you know, the growing need to reinvest in existing infrastructure. You know, this is an area that had been underinvested in at the time after the post sort of World War II expansion. It's the usual suspects, the old roads and bridges and water mains and wastewater systems, even nuclear power generation, for example. You know, these were areas that had been capital deprived over the past several decades and continued to be. And at the same time today, that still exists, but we do need new infrastructure. And I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit, but you know, that would be areas like renewable power and battery storage and new transmission and distribution grid investments, things like fiber and data centers and communications infrastructure and new LNG and natural gas transportation and storage systems, potentially you know, upgraded down the road to facilitate you know, the usage of hydrogen. And these are all businesses that remain essential. So I think it is a pretty steady thesis that's hung together quite well across a couple of cycles now. But I do think there is one thing that's changed, and that's the market conditions today. And, you know, in hindsight, I would say the pandemic brought with it, you know, a change in business cycle in kind of a meaningful way. I think the it arguably left behind one of the best periods for infrastructure investing that we're likely ever going to see. And now what we call the Tina narrative, or there is no alternative, that's no more. And that's largely due to the normalization of interest rates. So I would say the prior cycle was atypically good, not so much that the, you know, the current one is atypically tough. And I'd also say there's greater competition for infrastructure dollars you know, from all corners of the market these days. So you know, the higher rates have meant you know, cash and treasuries and high-grade corporate bonds, for example, are pretty competitive in the more defensive arena we all know about the growth opportunities out there in certain specific sectors, 
Meanwhile, value investing seems to be sort of a trade versus a, an enduring theme or, or approach given the narrowness of the markets. And, and there's certainly an abundance of thematics to choose from, you know, with AI kind of being the dominant one today. So in general, I'd say there's a lot more competition for the investor's wallet as well. I'd also say that higher interest rates mean higher funding costs. And for businesses that fund their growth externally, which you know is a lot of infrastructure, that has meant greater skepticism about achieving that future growth by investors. So especially at a time when you know debt levels are at hefty sizes for many infrastructure companies. The market is basically saying that the value of a dollar of future growth is different depending on whether it is self-financed or externally financed. And I think these conditions are here to stay and are actually more normal than what we experienced in the past cycle. And you know, this is a reflection that has to be in the markets that needs to be respected. So I think this is incorporated into our process now and, and generally it's become harder this cycle versus last, but the thesis hasn't changed. And the good news is that valuations have overshot, in my opinion, to the downside during the recent central bank tightening phase. And now I think discounts are more conservative growth outlook with better yield on offer. And this should become more valuable to the markets now that central banks look to be done raising interest rates. And I finally want to just bring home an old one that's now a new one again. And that's, you know, the resurgence or re-engagement of the private market. So recently we've seen a number of things that have piqued our interest. BlackRock recently announced a $12.5 billion acquisition of global infrastructure partners. A company called General Atlantic acquired a a UK private equity firm called Actis for an, an undisclosed sum. Brookfield completed yet another fundraising for a $12 billion private equity fund dedicated to infrastructure. And Macquarie just announced an $8 billion European infrastructure private equity fund that's just closed. So there is still a lot of capital being deployed in the private market into infrastructure. And it shows there's still a very strong commitment from an investor base with longer term time horizons. So I think this kind of frames how you invest in infrastructure today. And you know, it still hangs together as a thesis, but you know, the market conditions have changed. That's probably the most significant thing in my view. One of the points I wanted to key in on was this idea of the market valuing self-financed companies versus not self-financed companies differently. So could you give us a little bit of background on what that means to be self-financed versus not and how that's changed versus pre-COVID? Yeah, so self-financed means, you know, you retain either a greater portion of your generated cash flows and put it back in the business versus paying it out because you see a substantial amount of growth potential or, you see maybe better value to your shareholders by paying more of your internally generated cash flow out in the form of yield and spending less on your growth opportunities because maybe those particular areas of infrastructure are more capital intensive, they're more risky, maybe there's more of a regulatory hurdle, maybe there might be a bit of overbuilding in the short term for a variety of reasons, you know, companies, that make the decision to not be reliant on using the equity and bond markets to fund future growth potential seem to be getting more market sponsorship today. And I think that's simply because the cost of capital has gone up across the board with higher interest rates. So you've seen higher interest rates mean debt funding costs go up, debt financing has become, I think, 
more selective. And I think you're going to see as well, hand in hand with that, a higher cost of equity. And generally speaking, a greater challenge to internal rates of return on offer if you're not careful in the infrastructure space. So the market has become a lot more discerning. And I think companies that heed that sort of greater scrutiny and decide to do ultimately what's best for shareholders, those companies are, are the ones getting rewarded today. When you're thinking about that, call it principle in the investment market, are there certain types of infrastructure that lend themselves to being self-financed better than others? Yes, definitely. So one area right off the bat is the more GDP sensitive area of the infrastructure spectrum. So that would be the railroads, the toll roads and the airports. Now here you have to be mindful of the fact that these businesses are more cyclical as a result. You do have to consider that there's a little bit more volatility in the earnings and therefore the business cycle is, impacts this area of infrastructure a little more significantly than some of the others. But they do have self-sustaining business models where you're not seeing a lot of capital intensive growth being required for these businesses. They tend to earn very good returns. They have solid pricing power. They're typically driven by long-term GDP growth plus a little bit on top. And what we tend to like about these companies is even though they are more GDP sensitive, they are pure infrastructure. So they have the unique monopolistic pricing power attributes. And so, you know, we'd be definitely looking to add more in this space at the right price. Again, being mindful of where we are in the business cycle. The other way to, I think, address this change in market conditions is to simply go for companies that have more sustainable yield in the total return mix. So we're seeing that in call it a, a half a dozen areas. So one would be energy infrastructure where We've added over the past year and a half a pretty meaningful allocation. Again, being mindful of the commodity and GDP risks that are associated with this segment. But whether it's US MLPs or the large cap Canadian stalwarts, I think we're seeing pretty attractive sustainable yields in the 7 to 8% range, call it, uh, with a bit of growth on top. Uh, we've also focused on lower PE, higher dividend yield regulated utilities where I think they still have great underappreciated fundamentals. And, you know, the yields are now well north of 4% versus, you know, three to three and a half historically. What do you think the market doesn't appreciate about regulated utilities? I think the market sees these companies as being still too overly reliant on funding future growth. So there is no questioning the amount of investment required in this space. You know, there's a lot to invest in across the board for regulated gas and electric utilities, whether it's updating old infrastructure, whether it's firming up the power grids, whether it's replacing old gas mains and lines, you name it, there's a lot to spend on. And at the same time, you know, these companies are regulated, monopolistic in nature with still pretty good allowed returns. I think what the market is struggling with with these companies is to grow six to eight percent. You know, they still need to raise one to two percent of their market cap every year in the financial markets. And while central banks were tightening interest rates and financial conditions, 
that was sort of an unpalatable way to achieve what I think many would consider average to below average sustainable growth, certainly in comparison to other areas of the market that were more self-sustaining, like outside of infrastructure. So I think we're still going through a balancing process where one by one, individually, utility by utility, where is the growth coming from, how much, and how much do I get cash in hand from a dividend yield? And how much do they have to raise externally to achieve that growth? And so we're able to find quite a few opportunities within the regulated space, but you know we've broadened that to be more international, I would say, where dividend yields are higher, growth is lower, more self-sustaining, and you're seeing more appealing yield at the same time, a little bit uh, less growth, but still gearing towards some very attractive long-term growth themes, which I think we'll talk about in a bit. So I think that's where we're at with the regulated utility space and why the markets have been so hesitant to see the, you know, the value of the total return model that they're offering, which is still pretty healthy, you know, low double digits. Could you talk a little bit about energy security as a theme in infrastructure investing and how you invest in that in the Global Infrastructure Fund? This is probably the biggest long-term structural growth theme in infrastructure as I see it. And basically, you've got geopolitical tensions and climate change concerns coming together. And it's raised, I think, issues about both the security and nature of you know, your future energy supply. On the one hand, you've got energy demand growing noticeably. And this is the first time since I've been covering the sector over the last two decades where we've actually seen a meaningful uptick coming down the pipe in terms of power demand growth. And this is coming from a variety of ways. I mean, first and foremost, it's the, you know, the build out of artificial intelligence capabilities and the evolution of that theme requiring a substantial amount of power and energy to support it. As well, you're seeing the electrification prospects in certain industries further down the road, as well as the transportation sector. But we're already seeing a pretty meaningful uptick in electric vehicles. So that's driving low demand, generally speaking. And then I would also say increased manufacturing activity in certain regions is creating, I would say, different hubs around the United States, most noticeably, where an uptick in power demand is going to require some pretty immediate attention down the road if it's ignored for too long. You know, at the same time, you know, we're seeing energy supply likely going to struggle to keep up with this growth in demand. And that's due to a number of things. One, you know, restrictive permitting and approval processes, you know, for all kinds of energy infrastructure, as well as, you know, the build out of renewables is not going to reliably fill the void left by aggressive shutdown, say, in, in coal fire generation and other sources of power generation. And at the same time, I would say geopolitical tensions are redefining the flows of natural gas away from, you know, the higher risk regions that possess the resource and placing a greater value and emphasis on areas of the world that are lower risk that possess the resource. So this all contributes, I think, to a potential energy supply problem in the not too distant future. And we therefore see significant investment opportunities across the board in energy infrastructure, but would include renewable power companies, transmission and distribution grid operators, midstream and pipeline and LNG companies, and even merchant power companies all look to be well positioned to benefit from what we're seeing in terms of energy security as a long-term theme in the infrastructure space. Could you maybe just explain what is merchant power? What does that mean? 
And you invest in all of those different types of companies, including Merchant Power? Merchant Power would be the supply of electricity into unregulated markets where you're providing that electricity on the basis of spot prices set by supply and demand versus within a fully regulated jurisdiction where you're allowed a return on your rate-based investment. So you're typically taking on commodity exposure by investing in these businesses as well power in and of itself is a commodity in an unregulated market. And then the price of that power tends to still be set by the price of natural gas being you know, the incremental supplier of power in any given market. So that's typically been less appealing to us in terms of uh, infrastructure investment. I'd rather have a more regulated power option, but given this growing supply demand crunch that seems to be happening right in front of us, I believe that there's going to be a greater value ascribed to these companies that can be dispatched on a reliable basis and provide power and electricity to these unregulated markets as power markets become more thinly uh, provided and served. And at the same time, these merchant power companies tend to produce pretty decent free cash flow yields and pay, call it five to 7% sustainable dividend yields on top. So that's why we're more interested in merchant power. Could you just put a little bit of statistics around what was power demand growth or shrinkage before COVID and what caused that? How does it look right now and, and into the future? So typically power demand, and we're primarily focused on the United States, but I think this is going to be a phenomenon that becomes more of a global one. But right now, let's just focus on the United States because it's the biggest and offers the most breadth in terms of investment options for us. Power growth was, I would say, in a strong period, maybe 1% year over year. And in some regions was actually declining at a similar rate. And that was for a couple of reasons. One, the offshoring of manufacturing meant a pretty meaningful amount of load demand moved offshore out of the United States to other lower cost jurisdictions in the world. And industrial demand tends to be a pretty significant portion of load demand in, in any given area. Uh, industrial and commercial combined could be as much as half in some instances. Uh, and then secondly, I would say there's a greater push on energy efficiency within households and businesses and office buildings, et cetera. And a combination of those two things meant sluggish to no growth in low demand for many, many years. I would say almost the past 10 to 15 years. And there was really no need to invest in a lot of new generational capacity. And I think that script has now flipped to where we're gonna run short of power in the next call it five plus years as load demand starts to pick up. And we're seeing in some instances, like right away today, load demand growing at about 5% over the next three to five years per year. And that's concentrated in certain manufacturing hubs and AI, I'll call them AI hubs in the United States, but that could grow to be more nationwide as the onshoring and sort of digitization trends continue to play out. And, and that's going to require a lot of investment in generation. It's also going to require a lot of investment in transmission and distribution grids being capable of handling that kind of low demand on top of it. So basically going from zero to 5% growth, which is significant in the power space and requires a lot of investment. That's sort of the order of magnitude we're looking at. 
I mean, that is an enormous change going from shrinking demand or zero or 1% to 5% growth. And if natural gas and power demand and peaking supply are correlated, it certainly would make you think natural gas might be an interesting place to invest. Uh, it also makes me think about data centers and the amount of demand that they're creating for power. How do you think about data centers as an infrastructure asset? Are they something that you could or would invest in? Yeah, data centers are definitely investable from my perspective. I will say we're squarely focused on the cell tower networks today. They're not as direct drive to the artificial intelligence theme as data centers are, but there is, I think, a greater value opportunity in that space. At the same time, they offer better sustainable distribution yields and a little bit less capital intensity, well, a lot less capital intensity than say data centers. Data centers, I think, are in the heart, you know, front and center of the artificial intelligence theme. And you're gonna see a lot of investment in that space. But right now, what I'm seeing is the stocks that are available to us in the listed space, they tend to trade at fair value or maybe a little bit higher. They tend to have a fair amount of capital intensity, which means they do require a lot of external financing. And for those reasons, we're generally not engaged in the space right now, but at the right price, we certainly would be. So Frank, I just want to go back to that first point I made about politicians really wanting to build infrastructure. In the post-COVID world, we've seen a ton of inflation in the construction sector. Construction costs are way higher. Do you invest in engineering and construction companies? And how do you think about investing in building infrastructure versus owning assets that already cash flow? It's always been um, a no-fly zone for us to not directly invest in engineering and construction because there's great companies in that space, but those companies lack the key attributes, I think, that define what is infrastructure, and that's you know pricing power and lack of competition. And that still exists today. I will say that the engineering and construction sectors are firing on all cylinders because of all of the building that's going on for a variety of reasons, whether it's industrial policies in the United States that's supportive of onshoring and reshoring of manufacturing capacity, or say the decarbonization trends that are leading to a lot of investment in construction activity in the uh, electricity segments. But these businesses do tend to be quite cyclical and they do tend to compete away their profit margins over time. It ebbs and flows and we're in a sweet spot now, but that won't always be the case. And so I think that in order to properly get the attributes of an infrastructure portfolio, and you know, this is what the Black Rocks and Brookfields uh, of the world are trying to do with their recent fundraising activities, as well as Macquarie's, and that's to capture the unique properties of a properly defined infrastructure investment. And I think there's still very strong demand for that in the long-term oriented investment community. So we're, we're still gonna stay away from directly investing in engineering and construction companies. Although there is some exposure to that sector in our toll road investments as a couple of our names bring with them in-house engineering and construction capabilities. And you know it's not an insignificant amount of their, of their business mix. Um, and that's fine. It's, it's working for us today, given that we are in kind of a sweet spot for that sector. But for now, 
I think our clients can certainly gain exposure to the, you know, the the attributes of the engineering and construction segment separately outside of what we're trying to offer. If, if that's what they want, we're going to stick to the, I think, very attractive attributes of pure infrastructure. When you say the word pure, what do you mean by that? These would be businesses that provide essential services and they tend to have as doing so pricing power and operate within a regulated or a regulatory framework and earn pretty good, not outstanding rates of return, like in comparison to some other industries out there, but you know, pretty good competitive returns on investment so long as the regulatory environment holds up. And I think in doing so, that still provides a unique opportunity. And so these would be the usual suspects that we've always been in. So it would be the railroads, toll roads, and airports in the GDP sensitive bucket. It would be regulated electric, gas, and water utilities in the pure regulated segment. And it would be the renewable power pipeline midstream and LNG companies and data infrastructure companies like cell towers, fiber, and, and data centers within the long-term contracted buckets within the infrastructure space. And I think we can still find really good opportunities within those parameters and within those, those segments and still give our unit holders, I think, what they're looking for in a, an infrastructure portfolio. Is public infrastructure investing similar to private infrastructure investing? You know, we saw this very big splashy announcement from BlackRock buying global infrastructure partners. So why did they invest in that? Whether you're listed or whether you're private, you're investing in the same asset. The two cycles or the two marketplaces don't necessarily sync up in terms of performance and valuations in a shorter term time horizon. And, and that could even mean over a couple of years as private equity is marked to model usually, and whereas in the listed space, we're marked by the minute. But over the long term, if you're buying the same assets, the total returns should be very similar. And I think we've seen, we've certainly seen a normalization of that in the listed markets. And we've seen it as well in recently announced acquisitions within the private space of certain investments and assets. So we've seen private market valuations come down due to the higher borrowing costs. And we've seen sort of a normalization of acquisition multiples in that space that better aligns with what's in the listed space, although the listed space still looks more attractive in terms of what the markets are valuing these stocks at. In terms of the recently announced BlackRock acquisition, I think that's a sign of a couple of things. One, that the long-term opportunity is still very much there. The demand from long-term oriented investors that would be supporting these private equity offerings is still very much there. I think it's also a function of, it's a tougher market now in the private space and BlackRock did not have a meaningful offering in the infrastructure sector. And the primary principle of global infrastructure partners is 70 years old and he was looking, I think, to transition out and so the opportunity lined up for BlackRock to get meaningfully bigger in an area of private equity that still has legs. That's, that's my primary 
takeaway from that transaction. And I would also say that private equity infrastructure investment has gotten a lot harder because of the higher debt costs. And now you need a lot more focus and total return or IRR out of your investments that come from things like improving the fundamentals of the business and buying companies at more reasonable valuations and taking advantage of market dislocations. And I, I don't think that was the playbook in the previous cycle. I think, I think financial engineering was the name of the game. And now I don't think that opportunity is available. So if you're going to continue to play in the infrastructure space in the private equity world, you're gonna to need to have broader capabilities, greater sort of presence in the market, and the ability to extract competitive returns um, in, in ways that are beyond just simple financial engineering. That's, that's my sort of interpretation of the recent activity we've seen in the private equity space. So Frank, to wrap up, why does infrastructure seem competitive with other investments out there? Our infrastructure portfolio now offers a more competitive yield, which is approximately four and a half percent. And we recently raised the distribution yield by 1% this year on our units. And the idea is to migrate the internal yield higher as opportunities present themselves. This should start to look more appealing in, in comparison to the risk-free rates and other defensive investments on offer today. And I think especially so if interest rates have not only stopped going up, but may actually begin to come back down again. The other thing I would say is the sustainable, more specifically or importantly, essential growth over the long term continues to be very healthy. You know, call it upper mid single digits. And with less external financing, I think it becomes more believable and supportable by the markets. And in doing so, while we're not the high growth areas of the market, and we'll never be able to compete with them directly, I think this does differentiate the growth we're offering now in the infrastructure portfolio. And it does look a little bit better to investors uh, on the basis of being more self-funding uh, and sustaining. So I think when you take that together, the total return offering of yield plus growth should resonate better in the current uh, market environment. And I do think the rejuvenation of private market activity in just the past few months speaks to the long-term commitment of the pension and sovereign wealth fund community, especially with the reset in valuations. So, you know, I think while three years of consolidation, call it, in infrastructure stocks may feel like a long time to go with subpar returns, it is really just a small blip in the grand scheme of things, considering the massive need for essential infrastructure investment, which is still measured in trillions of dollars. So I, th I think we're really uh, now well set up for what lies ahead in this new market cycle and are really optimistic about the multiple ways to generate healthy total returns in the years ahead in the infrastructure sector. Well, Frank, I think you've made a wonderful case for infrastructure as an investment. It's got uh, essential, predictable growth and a much higher yield. So thank you very much, Frank. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete lineup of actively managed funds, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. Thanks for joining us. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. 
Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption or option changes or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated.